You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. as a service and APTs as the customers. Cyber espionage activity by Indian APTs. Gamers under attack. Starlink limits Ukrainian access to its systems. The EU levies new sanctions against digital information manipulation. Ukraine's security service takes down money laundering exchanges. Ben Yellen unpacks Fediverse security risks. Our guests are Mike Marty, CEO of the Retired Investigators Guild, and Tom Brennan, Executive Director of Crest, discussing their efforts on cybercrime investigation and cold case resolution. And Nozomi's OTIOT security report sees a lot of opportunistic, low-grade whacking at industrial organizations. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Researchers at Halcyon have published a comprehensive report delving into the world of command and control providers used by ransomware gangs. In their study, they shine a spotlight on the Cloudsy virtual private service provider, which they label as a common service provider supporting ransomware attacks and other cybercriminal endeavors. While Cloudsy is incorporated in the United States, the researchers have strong indications that the company almost certainly operates out of Tehran, Iran, raising concerns about potential violations of U.S. sanctions. The researchers' findings reveal that threat actors extensively exploit Cloudsy, with notable associations to APT groups tied to various nation-states. These groups hail from China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, India, Pakistan, and Vietnam, indicating a global network of cyber adversaries. Moreover, the roster includes a sanctioned Israeli spyware vendor notorious for targeting civilians. Additionally, the report highlights several criminal syndicates and ransomware affiliates whose activities have captured international headlines. Another noteworthy revelation from the cybersecurity domain involves Indian APTs conducting cyber espionage campaigns. 
According to Cypherma researchers, these APTs are employing a deceptive app called SafeChat to surreptitiously install spyware on targeted Android devices. The spyware payload bears similarity to an Android version of CoverLM malware capable of capturing call logs, texts, and geolocation data. The targets of these campaigns appear to be concentrated in South Asia, particularly Pakistan. While some observers initially attributed these activities to mercenaries, Cypherma's report contradicts such claims, asserting that it is, in fact, an Indian APT group acting on behalf of a particular nation-state government. The report elucidates several reasons supporting this conclusion, but refrains from disclosing the specific target location due to sensitivity and security concerns. The Hacker News reports that another group known as Patchwork is believed to have ties to Indian operators. This group is deploying the iShell backdoor to conduct attacks against Chinese universities and research institutes, with overlapping techniques observed in targeting entities in Pakistan. Notably, Sidewinder and Do Not Team, both previously linked to India, show similarities in their modus operandi. Bleeping Computer reports that cyber attackers are capitalizing on the bleeding pipe remote code execution vulnerability that affects numerous Minecraft mods running on Forge. The exploit grants attackers full remote code execution capabilities on clients and servers utilizing popular Minecraft mods. The vulnerability resides in the unsafe deserialization code of certain mods rather than Forge itself. Incidents of the bleeding pipe exploit have already been identified on unsuspecting servers, raising concerns about potential malware spreading to infect connecting clients. The gaming world faces another security breach. TechCrunch reports that hackers are spreading a worm through a vulnerability that affects the 2009 version of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Remarkably, security researcher Maurice Hoyman discovered and reported the bug to Activision in 2018, but the company never issued a patch to address the flaw. This simple buffer overflow vulnerability with limited restrictions enables attackers to write a full-fledged exploit with ease. While the gaming incidents themselves may not significantly impact gamers, they serve as alarming entry points that could lead to wider network breaches. On the geopolitical front, Starlink, the communication infrastructure project led by Elon Musk, has come under scrutiny for selectively limiting Ukrainian military access to its systems. The Telegraph reports that a planned attack involving surface drone boats against Russian naval units in the Black Sea was cancelled when Starlink withdrew the necessary connectivity for the operation. Musk's stance reflects his reluctance to have his system support long-range offensive operations. However, this decision raises concerns about dependency on external communication infrastructure and highlights the importance of self-sufficiency in times of geopolitical tension. The European Union has recently imposed new sanctions targeting digital information manipulation in the context of disinformation campaigns supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This latest round of sanctions focuses on an operation known as Recent Reliable News, The EU identified the creation and operation of over 270 proxy news outlets that amplified coordinated Russian propaganda. Entities sanctioned include InfoRoss, a news outlet closely connected to Russia's GRU, considered the coordinator of recent reliable news. 
Additionally, ANO Dialog, a Russian not-for-profit associated with Russia's Department of Information and Technology, has also faced sanctions. Moreover, the Institute of the Russian Diaspora, the Social Design Agency, Structura National Technologies, and two Russian IT firms have been subjected to EU sanctions. The measures involve asset freezes and prohibitions on EU citizens funding these organizations, and designated individuals are forbidden from entering or transiting through EU countries. As Ukraine grapples with the ongoing war, cybercrime persists even under wartime conditions. In a recent development, Ukraine's security service announced that it successfully dismantled a network of illicit fundraising sites, facilitating the conversion of Russian rubles into Ukrainian currency. This network exploited various sanctioned Russian crypto payment services, conducting monthly currency turnover exceeding $4 million. The security service of Ukraine discovered and shut down underground exchange points in cities including Kyiv and Kharkiv, demonstrating the nation's determination to tackle financial crimes even amid geopolitical turmoil. And finally, Nozomi Networks released their OT-IoT security report for the first half of 2023. The report highlights a surge in network scanning activities in water treatment facilities, clear text password alerts across the building materials industry, program transfer activity in industrial machinery, OT protocol packet injection attempts in oil and gas networks, and more. The researchers note there are three main categories of OT and IoT cyber incidents, opportunistic, targeted, and accidental. Over the past six months, opportunistic attacks remain the most prevalent and will continue to flood traffic via DDoS attempts, enumerate common weaknesses and vulnerabilities for initial access, and trial and error malware strains regardless of network domains and target systems. So, recently at least, industrial organizations seem to be facing much the same sorts of attacks other organizations do. Whether state actors like Volt Typhoon would represent a more focused and disruptive threat to industrial processes themselves remains to be seen. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen unpacks Fediverse security risks. Our guests are Mike Marty, CEO of the Retired Investigators Guild, and Tom Brennan, Executive Director of Crest, discussing their efforts on cybercrime investigation and cold case resolution. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tom Brennan is executive director of Crest International, a global nonprofit that focuses on accreditation and certification of cybersecurity professionals within their member companies. Crest recently announced a partnership with another nonprofit organization called the Retired Investigators Guild, the RIG for short, along with the release of a co authored research paper titled Building an Effective Cybercrime Unit. Mike Marty is CEO of the RIG. You know, our mission is, is a pretty simple one. It's restoring America's faith in law enforcement and continuing the tireless pursuit of criminals in the interest of victims of violent crime. Um, and one of those things, uh, the vehicle in which violent crime usually is riding in, uh, is some sort of cyber component. Uh, that's where I believe the connection between Crest and RIG is so important. Uh, we assist law enforcement agencies with subject matter experts to help them in major crimes investigations. You all shared some interesting statistics here about um, folks who've retired from law enforcement uh, and how an organization like the RIG really gives them an opportunity to use their skills beyond retirement. Yeah, Dave, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm a retired homicide investigator, retired from the Douglas County District Attorney's Office as the chief investigator, uh, working numerous homicides that span the globe. The average lifespan for somebody like me upon retirement is between six and nine years. That's a lot of mental issues, a lot of medical and health-related issues that come with the job. What we attempt to do with RIG investigators is reinvigorate them, get them passionate about the things that they're subject matter experts in, and direct them to helping solve cold cases and assisting with major active cases. Well, let's dig into this research paper. This is Building an Effective Cybercrime Unit. Uh, what are you all uh, hoping to accomplish here with the paper? The goal of the paper is to outline some practices that are sometimes not well discussed. Um, one of the common themes that we found uh, in speaking with organizations and agencies around the world was you know, sometimes the large metropolitan locations have uh, a pretty good framework that they pull from. But again, smaller organizations or organizations that may not be as staffed you know, struggle with what that looks like. So we help them with identifying both the mapping to the, the strategy and some of the minimum standards and what some of those performance indicators may be in running an effective uh, cyber squad, particularly investigating cyber crime. Um, so there's a component there, as Mike mentioned, I think, that whether it be a homicide, whether it be a kidnapping, whether it be something of in that space – 
nowadays technology is using just about everything, right? So there needs to be a component there that is looked upon. And then also spinning around um, when organizations are under attack. You know, we have law enforcement agencies that are being uh, attacked physically uh, and uh, electronically. And then data integrity is at risk. So let's say you have undercover operatives or you have individuals that are working on cases or matters and the data integrity is uh, disrupted. That can cause significant impact to the victims affected. You know, Mike, I'm curious where we stand when it comes to law enforcement organizations having cybercrime units. I'm I'm imagining there's, there's such a broad spectrum. You know, there's small town uh, police forces and all the way up to something like New York City, which is, you know, a, a huge employer and everything in between. Overall, what's your sense of, of where organizations stand in terms of trying to address this issue? Across the United States, we're behind the eight ball. We're behind the eight ball because technology advances at su- such a rapid pace and corporations have the money to fund that as far as investigations and preventing cybercrime local law enforcement agency in your small town barely has the budget to keep men and women on the street, let alone protect their critical infrastructure and, you know, some of the backbones of their IT network. So, you know, in my opinion, professionally speaking, I think that, you know, law enforcement's behind the eight ball uh, when it comes to how prepared we are. And then investigating those crimes, let's, let's talk about subject matter expertise. You maybe have one uh, computer forensics expert, in a small town that services, you know, many jurisdictions. So overworked and and not enough men and women to do the job. To what degree is there an educational component here as well? I mean, you know, as you say, cybersecurity and these cyber crimes, they evolve so quickly. I can imagine it's a challenge for a detective, a, a law enforcement officer just to keep up. Yeah, you know, just in standard training, Right. Most law enforcement agencies across the United States have anywhere between 24 and 48 hours of mandatory training just to be a basic peace officer. Then layer on top of that the specialty assignments that they have. Now let's talk about computer forensics or cybersecurity. That in and of itself is an educational path that is in its infancy right now in law enforcement. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I think this partnership between uh, Crest and the RIG will help do with our outreach into those law enforcement agencies to bring a trusted partner with us, you know, on our journey. You know, Mike, you all sent over some statistics uh, ahead of our interview here, and I I found uh, rather sobering how few organizations have cold case units. What is the response that you all are getting when you're reaching out to these understaffed organizations and saying, hey, hey, you know, this may be a potential resource for you. It's been tremendous and welcoming. Uh, You know, I can tell you as, you know, a former chief, uh, if somebody came to me with this opportunity to have uh, no strings attached for free subject matter expertise inserted in on a cold case or a major crime uh, that's active and I didn't have the bodies, this is huge. And so, you know, what we are combating right now is the funding piece to fund us so that we can do these things at no cost for law enforcement agencies. But it's, it's been overwhelming, overwhelming support from law enforcement. That's Mike Marty, CEO of The Rig, joined by Crest International Executive Director Tom Brennan.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Good to be with you again, Dave. So, Ben, you are still hanging out over on the platform formerly known as Twitter, right? Yes, I'm a dead-ender for X, <laughs> previously known as, as Twitter. Are you are you Xing or whatever we call tweets Z-ing, these days? X-E-E-T, I guess, oh, is the preferred okay. parlance. Uh-huh. Yeah, as bad as it gets now, as awful as the user experience has become, mm-hmm. I will be there until its last dying day. Why? I think it's network effects. Okay. <laughs> I already have a lot of uh, friends and acquaintances who are on there. I have right. a lot of really interesting conversations with people. Yeah. I've built up that network over a long period of time, and it's going to be very difficult to recreate somewhere else. Yeah, can't let go. Um, I'm, not ha- I'm certainly not happy about it. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's like quitting smoking, right, or something like that. It yeah. is. Yeah. No, I mean, it's you become so – your body becomes so dependent on it. Right, that It's just right. so hard to quit. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I – could quit, and I guess I, I should hold out the possibility that it gets so bad, mm-hmm. uh, but I do consider myself a dead-ender. Okay. Well, uh, I and lots of people like me have uh, uh, put our Twitter accounts into hibernation or deleted them altogether and found greener pastures over on Mastodon, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, is uh, the federated... Uh, Twitter-like service. Uh, I guess uh, microblogging is the probably correct term of art for what Right, that feels there. very 2011, but I guess we're still calling it <laughs> microblogging. Right, yeah. right. Uh, and the big deal with Mastodon is that it is not centralized. It, it is part of the Fediverse, and, and federation means it, it functions more like email does, where instead of one big central place where everything happens, you have lots of servers peppered all over the world, uh, and you sign up to use a particular... Uh, instance, and that's where your stuff lives, and it gets sent out to the rest of the Fediverse. And and so this distributed model uh, certainly has its pluses and minuses, but, uh, you know, thanks to everything that's going on at Twitter, it's gained a lot of popularity. So that leads me to this article from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, and it's written by Cindy Cohn and Rory Meir. It's titled, FBI Seizure of Mastodon Server Data is a wake-up call to Fediverse users and hosts to protect their users. And uh, evidently, this deals with uh, an individual who was hosting a Fediverse instance, a Mastodon instance, who, because of unrelated allegations, had basically every piece of electronic equipment in his home seized by the police, including the Mastodon server that he was running. Right. That's an issue. That's a huge issue. And it's something that's happened uh, historically. The EFF was involved in a case 30 years ago. It's amazing that they've been in existence that long. Yeah. Um, but good for them. And this involved a case called Stephen Jackson Games versus the Secret Service. It concerned the seizure of vast amounts of equipment from an individual named Steve Jackson who had a games business in Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, there were unfounded claims of illegal behavior. They went in went in and kind of just took everything uh, from this guy's house. The police did, yeah. The police did, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in doing so, they nearly drove this company out of business. Uh, the EFF was involved in litigation. They won that case, but that hasn't changed federal law enforcement's approach. I think that this really runs afoul of the spirit of the Fourth Amendment, which mm. is about having particularized warrants. Now, in each of these cases, there was a warrant. This wasn't a warrantless search. Okay. The government got authorization based on probable cause to go into this guy's house. Right. Uh, so that's good. 
But the warrants should uh, not be so overbroad that it justifies the collection of all electronic equipment. It should only justify the collection of that very equipment or device or whatever that is necessary uh, to investigate the case. And anything that is deemed unnecessary to investigate the case should not be seized as part of that search process. Mm. And I think that would comply with the true spirit of the Fourth Amendment, which going back centuries was about our English legal ancestors being concerned that the king was going to authorize a raid on somebody's house to just kind of see what they found, right. see if there were any materials that were disapproved of by by royalty and, and by the king's minions. Yeah. Uh, so that feels kind of oddly analogous to what's happened here. And I think um, certainly the, the case with Mastodon uh, is, is eye-opening and I think should give us warning about uh, what would happen if law enforcement continues on this path. But Ben, if I'm law enforcement and uh, I have made the case to a judge that there's probable cause that this person is up to no good, how am I going to know if what I'm looking for, or how am I going to know the location of what I'm looking for until I have a chance to look around? I mean, warrants should be as particularized as possible. You should describe the items to be searched or items to be seized in a very particular manner. Otherwise, it becomes overbroad. So if I said, I suspect Dave of committing computer crimes. Right. Uh, and I raided your house and took every last piece of equipment. Yes, that would probably comply with, I could probably get a warrant to do that. It seems mm-hmm. like federal uh, law enforcement has been able to obtain warrants that are that broad. Uh, but it would be unfair because it wouldn't be particularized to the piece of equipment on which you were committing those crimes. Mm. I guess you aren't a, a great example because unlike uh, the person in this case, you are not hosting a key server involved in the Fediverse, which right. has cross-market impacts. Uh, well, but let's dig into that. I mean, in the time we have left, you know, why why should that matter that one of the pieces of equipment gathered also affected people who had nothing to do with any of this? Yeah, I mean, I just think it gives all of us a stake in trying to develop a better standard for this type of collection. Mm. Maybe we think it'll never affect us because we don't commit crimes. And we think if federal law enforcement is going to somebody's house pursuant to a warrant based on probable cause that that person has committed a crime, then what's in it for us? I mean, Mm -hmm. who cares? Right. Uh, But the reason we care is it could be this person's house that has something like this collectiva.social server uh, used for Mastodon, and that could affect all Mastodon users. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that's the way the Fediverse works. So... Yeah, I just think it gives everybody more of a stake in the outcome of these searches and seizures, uh, and it makes it more of a policy issue rather than just uh, an issue for a single criminal defendant. Right. All right. Interesting to ponder. (laughs) Ben Yellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The CyberWire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.